If you're anything like me, you're probably always looking for the next great professional in the land business who can help you do what you need to do, like a great real estate agent or a great closing agent, like a title company or accountants or attorneys or private money lenders. We all know it's not that hard to find any real estate agent or any accountant or any title company. But what if you want the best ones who actually understand the land investing business? There's not that many of them out there. And once you find a good one, there is no doubt they are worth their weight in gold. So how are you supposed to find these people? I used to see these posts in our Facebook group all the time, literally every day from people who were posting these announcements, hoping to find the best professionals that they needed to work with in order to make their business thrive. And I totally understand why people post these things because where else are you supposed to go? And so I said, you know, why don't I actually try my best to solve the problem? And so that's what I did. I created several different professional directories on retipster.com that are completely submitted and curated by other members of our community. So say, for example, if you're looking for a great investor-friendly title company in Virginia or someplace like that, and you want to find all the title companies that have worked really well for other investors in the community, well, guess what? We have that now. Go to retipster.com forward slash directory, and you can find all the different directories that we have going right now, and we're actually creating more of these as I speak. So far, we've got one for land specialized real estate agents, accountants who understand the land business, and investor-friendly title companies. So if you ever need help finding these people in whatever market you're working in, this information is here for you, and we've made it extremely easy to sort these people by state, and by their specialty, and we include links to their websites, we give their phone numbers, their contact information, everything, and guess what? It's 100% free. That's right, you don't have to pay anything for this stuff. You don't even have to give us your email address. I'm serious, this is unlike anything else you're gonna see out on the internet. This is simply an act of love for the land investing community. So if you would find that helpful, or better yet, if you know of a great title company or land specialized real estate agent or accountant, I'd invite you to come and submit that information too. The more this information we can gather, the better. So again, all you have to do is go to retipster.com forward slash directory. Or if you go to the retipster homepage and you go up to the navigation bar and hover over resources, you'll see a menu item called professional directories. If you click on that, it'll take you to the same place. So just wanted to be sure you knew about that so that you can find the people you need. And if you know of some great people, you can submit their information as well. Attention real estate rookies. You want to turn a profit? You're thinking buildings, neighborhoods, cities, and you're wrong. Forget the concrete jungle. This is your new frontier. The land investing masterclass. You know your ABCs, right? Always be closing. Try ABL, always be land investing. Expert instructors, advanced strategies, real-world applications. This course equips you with the tools to seize opportunity where others only see dirt. Believe me when I tell you, you want to play this game to win. First prize is the power to reshape the world on your terms. Second prize is a set of steak knives. Third prize, well, we won't go there. Are you tough enough? Good. This is your wake-up call. This is the Land Investing Masterclass. Go to landinvestingmasterclass.com and you'll find everything you need to know. Coffees for closers only. Are you a closer? Prove it. Go to landinvestingmasterclass.com.
Hey folks, how's it going? This is Seth Williams and you're listening to the RE Tipster Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with my friend JB. So why is this an important conversation to me? Because JB is one of these guys who nets, not grosses, but nets well over seven figures in his land business year after year. But you know what? He doesn't really want or need anyone else to know about it. He's not trying to be an influencer. He's not trying to build an audience or sell coaching services. This guy just keeps to himself and keeps his head down and he plugs away day after day. And he doesn't need your or my approval to keep himself motivated. Anytime I hear about a land investor who is doing this well, I'm always really curious to know more about what they're doing and how they're doing it. But you got to admit, there's something kind of cool about someone who does this well And they also don't really care what you think or need the attention. They're self-motivated. They know how to work hard. And they're not really doing this to attract attention or get the glory from how well they're doing. And I've been emailing back and forth with JB since about 2017. And the first time I finally got on a Zoom call with him a couple years ago, I invited him to come on the podcast back then. But he didn't really seem that excited about doing it. Which, honestly, I completely understand, given his disposition and his lack of interest in being public about his success. But luckily for me, I was finally able to meet this guy face-to-face at a conference earlier this year. And I got to know him a little bit better and got to shake his hand. We got to have a meal together. And you know what? He actually agreed to do this interview. Can you believe it? So we're going to sit down and get a peek into the world of an undercover land investor and figure out... One man's recipe for success. Let's get into it. Hey, JB, how's it going? Welcome to the show. Seth, how are you, sir? <laughs> and by the way, I, I get to say this. I've always wanted to. I'm a longtime listener and first time caller. I've <laughs> <laughs> uh, been following your content for a long time. You do fantastic work. And that's why I agreed to do this was I wanted to help you out and, and help out your listeners. Yeah, well, I I and we appreciate it. And I'm sure by the time we get to the end of this, everybody will agree. This is going to be a pretty value-packed conversation. Let's just start from the very beginning. How'd you first learn about land investing? What made you decide to give this a shot? And and where were you coming from? Like, what was your prior career before you got into the land world? Sure. Always been a real estate guy. So when I was like in high school, there was a guy called, I think it was Robert Allen, wrote a book called Nothing Down. And uh, read all that. Always wanted to be in real estate. Bought my first piece of property when I was 23. It was a little two-bedroom condo and realized I could lease it pretty quickly. I'd come back from college. I said, all right, I'm moving out. I'm buying a place. I bought it. It's like, wait a second, I could rent that. So I rented it and then bought a second one. I'm 23 years old. I own two pieces of property. And I've always kind of dabbled in it and, and wanted to do that if I could. So, you know, you fast forward, I was in IT sales, extreme high-end, very large transactions. They take a year to complete, uh, lots of zeros, lots of lawyers, lots of technologists, and was doing that. I was very successful at it and, and made good money. But I was always looking for something more, especially when you wake up this year and people who were award-winning successful colleagues are laid off. And the next year, the other group is laid off. And, it, you know, you just, it's like my day's coming where the music stops and I don't have a chair. So I said, I really need to, to get back into real estate and do more of that. And I've always been a runner. So in 
2015 or so, they had these things that were kind of new called a podcast. What the heck is a podcast? Like, you know what? I'm going to listen to a podcast. I got to run anyway, so let's be productive with our time. And I said, okay, let's do this. If you're going to listen to a podcast, what are you going to listen to? Okay, business. Subset of that, I like real estate. Let's do real estate, which led me to a thing called Bigger Pockets. Then on Bigger Pockets, okay, I start, you know, there's multifamily, there's fix and flip, there's whatever, and there's this land thing. And there's this guy named Seth Williams talking about land. And okay, let's listen to that. And, you know, you run the numbers on it. Okay, wait a second. These returns are not 8% or 12%. And, you know, my background is if I walk into, you know, Home Depot, I fall asleep. I have no interest, have no ability, have no talent to fix anything. I'm a finance guy. So I said, okay, I like the fact that there's not a building involved and just kind of started on that journey, listening to podcasts and learning about it and kind of went from there. Awesome. So sounds like it was episode 39 of Bigger Pockets. You were one of those who kind of discovered it through that. Yeah. So like, take us through the evolution of this. So you heard about the idea and then like, how did you get to the point of actually having the confidence to give it a shot and trying this thing that was probably a very foreign idea to you, right? I mean, getting these lists and sending out mail. And like most of us, when we got started in this, it's like, it's like, what am I doing? Like, am I crazy for thinking this can work? Yes. You are crazy for thinking this can work. It's like, okay, <laughs> you're, you're telling me that I'm going to buy an asset and I'm going to turn around and, and sell it for essentially double the price in less than a year. That doesn't happen. There's no way. And and so, you know, I had I don't have a broker. I'm pretty darn good at, at managing and scrutinizing investments and making decisions for placing my money. And so I looked at this and I said, okay, if I buy a piece of property, it's essentially the same as clicking on a brokerage website and purchasing X number of shares. Let's say I, I spend ten thousand dollars on X number of shares. Okay, it's the same thing if I buy a piece of property. The only difference is I can't click to sell it. I'm going to have to unwind that. There's times when I've spent 10 grand on, on a, a stock and I end up with eight grand at the end of it. So I'm like, okay, let's try some other asset class. Let's just kind of see how this goes. So in for your listeners, you get people on here who talk about their business. I'm not selling coaching. I'm not selling a book. I'm not selling anything. I'm not here to benefit myself in any way. Your content is phenomenal. And anybody who's listening to this needs to drill down into as much as they can possibly consume. And that's what I did. I just said, okay, this guy seems genuine. He seems honest. He gives you the good and bad of, of whatever. He looks at pros and cons of whatever he's reviewing that day. So I spent six months or so looking through that. You used to do Ring Central and you had, you would advise yellow postcards. Hey, I want to buy your property, da, 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 whatever. So I did some of that in 2016, uh, failed terribly. But what I ended up getting was, hey, I want to buy your property. People would call me, sure. You know, you get a thousand people call you who say, I want a million dollars. And all you're doing is burning time. Mm -hmm. And I'm out. I'm not doing that. So I ended up purchasing a, at that time, I don't think you even had really a, a coaching program. Yeah, there was no no course back in the early days. So I had a uh, a coaching 
that I, I purchased from one of there's several gurus out there. In fact, in preparation for this, I went and looked. It seems like the number of land guru coaches has exploded. There's a lot of them out there now. You know, and I can name the, I'm going to call them the OGs of five or 10 years ago, either know them personally or have worked with them or reviewed their stuff. But anyway, I, I bought one of those and got started. And that's really how I got into it was, oh, let's let's get formal about this. And that started in December of 2016. And on that, the, the whole evolution of where your business has gone. So before we started recording here, you told me that in 2022, you had 4.5 million in top line sales and your net income was 1.1 million. And you started this in 2016. I think you said, so take us through like year by year, like where did it start in year one, year two, year three, how did it grow so much and why did it grow so much? Like what happened there in terms of how you brought this to where it is? So yeah, the the headline is in 2022, FY 2022, and I'm giving you rounded numbers, but they're really close. We did 4.5 million in gross sales and net income was $1.1 million. So that's what I paid taxes on. And I reported every stinking penny of it. And I wrote a very large check to the yeah, officer, Sure, That hurts. Which is leading me to some different decisions on yeah. how to prepare, you know, for taxes going forward. So you rewind. In 2016 was when I really started doing this and listening to your stuff. And, and I don't have any numbers for that. Didn't have any sales. Hadn't really invested, you know, a few hundred dollars, whatever. In 2017, I did $40,000 in gross sales. I think I did two deals with a gross profit, gross profit of $13,000. Now, what I don't have, because I was just getting started, I don't have the numbers that far back, was what was my net income for the business? I don't know. I mean, you've got startup costs for buying, buying a coaching plan, setting up a website, paying Pat Live, which I use, I use to this day, sending out mail, which is extremely expensive, buying data, all that. So, I want to say I lost 10 grand, maybe, but, you know, I, I failed miserably for a good six months, even, maybe even more than that, and finally got a deal and said, okay, I'm, I know I've lost money this year, but I see the potential. I see this does work, and there's unique reasons why why it works, and we can get into that if you want. But so 2017 was 40,000, gross profit was 13. In 2018, which is when I have full numbers, I did a half a million in sales uh, with a net income of $110,000. 2019, I did 1.1 million in gross sales, top line, with a net income of quarter mil. So we did $250,000. As you're saying this stuff, I don't know if you have this data, but like how many deals does this consist of? Is this like a thousand little deals or like three big deals or... Uh, have it all. So, you know, if you want it by year, I, I do everything by quarter. I came from the corporate world. Everything is is quarterly driven. Um, did you hit your numbers this quarter? Did you, et cetera? You don't have to get too specific, but just out of curiosity, just trying to figure out like what size range are we talking about here? Like how much, uh, what is the deal volume, I guess, that it takes to get to these numbers? Yeah. So deal volume, 2018, we did 11 deals. 19 was 20 deals. 2020 was 18. What were those uh, uh, gross and net numbers in 2020? Uh, 2020 was 1.9 million in sales. 
with net income of six hundred thousand. Okay. Uh, so let me finish up the sales numbers, the dollars, and we'll talk about deal quantity. Uh, Twenty one was three point four million, and a net income of nine hundred thousand. And twenty twenty two was four point five million, and a net income of one point one. Gotcha. So these are some pretty meaty deals, right? I mean, you're not going after little base heads. You're sounds like you're specifically focusing on big stuff that's going to give you a big bang for your buck. It, yes and no. I mean, not depends on your definition of big. So here's one of the decisions I made. I only use agents. And if you're going to make money in this business, I believe you only use real estate agents. That's one of the mistakes I made early on of having to learn really what what it takes to be successful. When I studied, reviewed, looked at my costs, well, let's say your costs for, you know, your mail is, I pick a number, 60 cents. Well, if I'm spending 60 cents per piece for direct mail, whether I make $2,000 on that deal or $200,000, that piece of mail still costs me 60 cents. So you've got some fixed costs that you're not going to impact. If you're going to impact the bottom line, you need to get more money for each transaction. That's number one. Number two is an agent is not going to, hey, I got a track I bought for $2,000. I'm going to sell it for five. An agent's not going to touch that. And you know, if you're going to leverage those folks, you need to have a number where they're going to be interested. So I have done million-dollar deals. And I I will, and I'm happy to do a deal that's, I don't know, 40, 50 grand. You know, an agent will look at that. I mean, let's, let's say it's a number that's 40 grand. Let's say I buy it for 20 and sell it for 40. Okay. But I've also, the next deal I'm talking about is a half a million. Okay. I don't ever look at it and say, well, I'm too good for that. If I buy it for 20 and sell it for 40 and I make $20,000 on it, I always look at myself in the mirror and say, that's a car. You're going to turn down a car? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do the deal. And, and oh, by the way, it's reps. It's it's more opportunities to learn, to get better, to grow your network, to expand, to, to see transactions. You know, you get people in any industry, they've, they've never seen the end of it. They've never seen the end of, you know, a transaction. The more transactions you see, the more you learn, the better you get. So, it's just got to be a number that's high enough that an agent will get involved, which typically the the floor there is twenty five or thirty grand, and then after that, as long as it meets the criteria and it and it it works for for my investment dollar and my return goals, great. Let's do the deal. Yeah, on these uh, like when you mentioned like a million dollar deal, is this just like a flip? Like, are you doing anything to the property? And and what kind of uh, margin is there on a deal of that size? Uh, 40, 50%. Well, I guess a hundred percent. So if you buy it for 500 and sell it for a million. It, it was this done like in the past year or like a few years ago or how long ago is this example deal we're talking about? Yes. I mean, I've got two running right now that are roughly a million dollars each on the buy side. Yeah. Do you find that there's less competition in that type of land? Like fewer people going after those bigger deals? Yes. Okay. You know, I, you know, I kind of laid out my numbers and I, I when you're making, you, you got a good job and you're, you're getting paid, you're doing well. And then you wake up one day and you just made a hundred, 200 grand in your side hustle. Do you go buy a boat? I don't, I drive a pickup truck and I'll drive a pickup truck for 10 years before I trade it in. 
I don't own a Rolex. I don't own a lake house. I put my money back in my business. And I just kept doing that. You get to the point, I mean, my saying is there's not very many people who can write those checks. Well, because I invested every penny back in the business all day long, every day for years and stacked it. Yeah. Now I can write that check and, and there's a limited buying pool for that. Yeah. So you don't get any outside funding. You just fund these all yourself. Yeah. So I come from a sports background. You know, you hear these all the time, you know, there is no I in team and we over me and there's all these cliches. If you ever hear me talk, I say we, there ain't nobody else. It's just me. It's just my money. There are no outside investors. I don't do LPs and GPs. I have a fiercely independent, I'll say perturbed, <laughs> if you know the term. I don't know what our what our restrictions are on language, but uh, <laughs> I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. So I don't have partners. And that's how I approach it. Your question was, do you do anything to the property? So... I mentioned I have two deals that are roughly a million dollars each on the buy side today. And and I should close on both of those in the next two to four weeks. One of those is through direct mail. And one of those I found online. So, you know, as you grow the business and you look at it and you say, all right, I got to find the next deal. Well, this is going to sound strange, but if you have a million dollars to place, That's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. You have a million dollars sitting in the bank. And if you look at, you know, M2 money supply and you look at inflation year over year, if you have a million dollars at 9% inflation, you're looking at 900, 910, whatever at the end of the year, your money's lost value. It has to be working for you. Okay. I got to go place a million in capital. How do I do that? This kind of sounds like like a first world problem to me. Just Insert that little comment there, but keep going. I mean, it's, it's the business. Yeah. You want to be successful. That's what we're doing. So, so do the numbers. These deals are hard to find. They're not easy. And it takes a lot of work every day. By the way, I don't play golf. I kind of laugh at, at the four hour work week. I don't do that. I get up every day. I go to work. I sit in my office. I work. I work. And I will usually work at least one day on a weekend, sometimes, you know, not 12 hours, although that has happened. But, you know, you'll put in two to four hours and review some things and write some checks and, you know, get people going for the next week or whatever. But we do that. So if you're trying to place, let's say you're trying to place a half a million dollars. Okay. You have to find 10 deals at $50,000 each in order to fully deploy that capital. That is hard to do. It takes a lot of mail, a lot of time, or you can accelerate the whole thing and find one deal for half a million bucks. So when your question is, do you do anything to it? The only thing I've done is subdivides. That's kind of the next step in the evolution. I mean, once you've learned what you're doing and you're growing your business and you're looking to to grow the bottom line, you start doing subdivides. Like I said, I've got the ability to write that check. So one of the things I do there is I will leverage banks. They're going to want to see your personal financial statements, your tax returns. You know, you have to you have to document all of that you have to memorialize and prove that up. And, you know, once you've been in business for two or three years and you've, you've made those numbers, 
then yeah, they're interested in talking to you. Yeah. Are, are those loans collateralized by the property or is it like a business line of credit that they're giving to you? It's primarily by the the asset, you know, like most things in real estate. So so it's like a, like a mortgage on the property, right? Yeah. You know, and, and I won't get into the, the term sheet that I use with, with my bank, but they're helpful and, you know, it's a great deal for them. I always pay my bills, you know, and my goal is, and I tell them flat out what I'm doing and I'm trying to get out of it in under, certainly under a year, but probably more like under six months. So really that's it is I, I uh, survey it and in sort of a plat map way, chop it up. And, you know, not putting in utilities, not putting in roads, not putting in anything and say, OK, here we go. Let's go sell them. And in that situation, a good example might be, let's say you're buying a million dollar deal. Well, let's say it's a 75, 25 loan. So 75 percent, 25 percent. So 25 percent down of a million dollars is is 250. So I'll put up 250 with a note against that. And I want to be the favorite customer of my vendors, whoever that is, including my banks. So I tell, you know, if you ever look at waterfalls and partnerships and that kind of stuff, oh, well, I get a management fee and then I get this part. And da, da, da. No, every stinking penny goes to the bank first. And I tell them, you're going to get paid off first. I don't see a dime until you're taken care of it, which they appreciate. So, you know, every dime goes into it and they'll pay it off. Well, if I I don't know, pick a number, right? You know, if, if I'm in for a million and I sell it for just, I'm out net of fees, net of commissions, everything at 1.25. Well, my cash on cash is 100% return because I put in 250, I sold net 1.25 million. So I made 250 on my 250 and I did it in six months. But if you're doing it right and you're buying them right, really you're selling it for like 1.4 million or 1.5 million net of fees. And so you can really accelerate your percentage return on those deals. But again, they're extremely hard to find. Yeah, man. So many questions are coming up as you're talking. I wish we could get them to all of them. But one of the things you mentioned was that you've got $2 million deals in the pipeline. And one of them you found through mail and one of them was online. Does that mean you found it on the MLS? You're like, where, where did you find this thing? And, and I guess if it was, maybe just answer that first question and then I'll get to the next one, depending on what you say. <laughs> well, in, in it, we can schedule a second conversation if you want to do that. I, I'm okay with that. So anything that's a subdivide, I find online on MLS. I will mail on large tracks and I will scrutinize them with an eye for a subdivide. So let's say I overpriced it. But I look at it and say, well, what could I do with this? Well, hey, I could chop this one up. Okay. Now, to be clear, I think I found maybe one that I'm potentially working on, but normally they don't work that way. You really need to see the map. You need to see you know, a, a whole list of things that you're looking for, but it really just helps if it's an MLS deal. The problem is when COVID hit, everybody wanted to be out of the cities. So the demand for rural property exploded. If you're sensitive to COVID, you don't want to be around other people. Great. You've got the summer of 2020 and all the violence that went on. You've got, hey, I can work from home now, so I don't need to fight 45 minutes in a traffic commute one way every day for decades. And I've always wanted to live in the country, et cetera. So the demand just shot up eventually. Well, when that happened, these folks 
who own, you know, 100, 200, 500, 1,000 acres, their broker started telling them, well, the people who buy this from you, they're just going to chop it up. So you need to multiply your ask price by 1.5. Well, then it kind of killed a ton of deals. Everybody's pricing their property, assuming it's going to be subdivided. And it's made it very difficult to find deals. So it's not easy. Yeah. You mentioned the importance of the agents in your business who are selling properties on your behalf. Like when you tell your bank, yeah, it's going to be turned around in six months or, you know, that's kind of the assumption you're making. Evidently, I mean, agents are very, very important for you. I mean, it's, it's like the whole half of your business on getting properties disposed and sold on time and that kind of thing, which makes me wonder, how do you find an agent you can trust? Like if you were looking for a new one right now and they're just telling you, yeah, I think it's worth this. I think it'll sell for this amount. Do this, this, this. Like, how do you know you can trust them? Do you have to like cross check what they tell you? And at what point are you confident with like, yes, I can take this person's word as the truth? And what are your thoughts on that? First of all, do they return your phone call? (laughs) And you, Seth, you laugh. If you're a real estate agent and you're listening to this, if you're willing to hustle, you can make all the money you want to make. Yeah. And it, it it shocks me. And I guess this is any industry. I don't care what it is. I have a standing rule. I have to call three agents before I pick one. So we do business in multiple states. You know, we, we go into a new market where all right, I need an agent in this area. I don't have one. I got to go find one. Okay. My standing rule is I have to call three agents. Here's typically the way it works. I'm going to call three people. One is never going to call me back. Okay, I don't understand. Somebody's calling you saying, hey, I want to give you a listing. I want to give you money. They don't return the call. They call you, but they're flaky. They don't really know. You could just, in a five-minute conversation, you figure out this person's not knowing what they're talking about. And the third one, they call you back. They're hustling. You know, they say, well, I'll, I'll check something. Let me look at comps. You get an email within 24 hours. They're texting you. They're on it. You could just feel it. You just, it's obvious. And my agents are a key, key part of my business. When I first started, I did a little, you know, a couple of times would list on my own on like, you know, landwatch.com or something. I wanted to feel it and understand it. But hey, I don't spend a dime for marketing. I don't pay to put it on MLS. I don't pay to put it on Facebook Marketplace. I don't pay anybody to go out and take pictures. My agents handle all of that. If we get 10 people who call who say, I want to buy the property and eight of them are tar kickers and wasting time, they're not wasting my time. They're wasting my agent's time. They they filter that. They negotiate the deals. They do all that. One of the great things about my business is I don't deal with customers. The agents do that. <laughs> and if you get, I mean, I literally have an agent. I have a couple agents, one-on-ones I use. I'm his biggest customer. We do millions. I don't know, two, two and a half last year. He and I, and we, we've been working together for years. Uh, he's phenomenal. I can't stress enough how important it is to have those great business partners. And that's the way I consider them. I'm so appreciative that they help me feed my family. I'm so appreciative of the hard work that they put in. The ones that are good, and they, let me tell you what, they make a ton of money. And God bless them. And, and I'll say this on agents. So in certain parts of the country, land agents charge 6%. For some reason, when you go east of the Mississippi, they want 10%. And I don't know why. And if I'd closed a million dollars with an agent and my 
my commission is 6% versus 10%. That's $40,000 out of my pocket. That's a lot of money. Yeah. When I can get the same service, the same partnership for 6%, which I think is fair. Now, what I will not do is I will never try to, well, you know, I've done three deals with you. So now you got to charge me 5% or 4%. I never negotiate that down, but have I paid eight? And I think I've done it once. But typically, if they're saying, well, you don't understand, I've got to have 10% because I've had a couple states where like, hey, he's got, you go look on land.com and he's got 20 listings. And you're like, all right, dude, I'll give you 8%. And then I'll talk to him like, well, I go to the gym every day. So you can't reach me from like 11 to 1. Okay. Well, are you going to show the property this week? Well, no, I don't work on weekends. <laughs> I'm like, okay, let me get this straight. You wanted 10% and you're telling me you work part-time essentially and you're just killing in all of these listings. So that's something that that I would caution people about. I think 6% is fair. I, I do it in other states all day long and no, nobody ever pushes back on that. But some states, for some reason, east of the Mississippi, they have decided in the marketplace that if they all demand it at the same time, they can get it. And the, the way around that is you call a residential lady who drives her little four, you know, she's got her SUV and she's showing single families, but it's a rural market and she'll also list land if she gets a chance and they're great and they work hard and they'll do 6% and we go forward. So you're actually having okay luck with people who sell residential houses? Yes. You know, but, but what do I need? Well, let's go down the checklist. I need marketing. I need it on MLS. I need a sign on the property. I need pictures taken. Whether you're looking at the living room and the kitchen or you're looking at a stand of trees, what difference does it make? They're publishing it to MLS. They're putting a sign on the property. They're answering questions when people call. Are they getting getting good pictures for you? Yeah. I mean, it's good enough. You just need a presence. My deal is not about, look, do you need to be, I'm going to date myself, Ansel Adams. I mean, you don't have to have the greatest photography. But do you have a presence? And when I initially interview them, I'll say, all right, where do you put it? And the answers I'm listening for are it ends up on MLS. It ends up on all of the lands, land.com, Landwatch, all of those. And then it also will publish to Zillow and Trulia and Realtor and all of that stuff. And then Facebook Marketplace. Are you leveraging that? And another thing I do with agents and we've all had this. If you've, if, even if you've sold your own home, you've seen this. You know, somebody tells you it's, you know, pick a number, 100 grand. Somebody else tells you it'll list and sell for 100 grand. The next person tells you it'll list and sell for 200 grand. Okay, wait a second. You know, one of them is wildly out. Well, people want to believe they're going to get the most for their property, right? We, we all see that. Okay. Well, I tell them, look, here's the deal. I need a contract in 45 days. And I also want to know what your bottom number is. What is the number you list this at so that your phone blows up and in 72 hours you have a contract? And they come back and they say, well, if that's really how you want to do it, then your number is going to be X. And I look at X and I say, okay, here's what I'm in for. Here's my buy side. If X still is profitable, great. Anything else is gravy, we can go. And that that local market knowledge, that boots on the ground, as some people say in, you know, like foreclosures and that kind of stuff, that is invaluable. I don't know that market. I don't live in that state. I, I couldn't tell you. 
But that value that an agent brings, you can't put a price on that. Yeah, that's interesting. This concept, just going back to what you said about just finding like a residential person who can get it on the MLS for you, can get decent pictures and be responsive to buyers and just checking those boxes. I think where I've seen a fall apart is where it comes to understanding land values because they just don't work with land that much. When you found residential people like this to fill in and just serve the purpose, do they understand? Like when you ask that question of, I want this thing sold in 72 hours, like do they really understand what it's going to take if they're not familiar with land? Or Yeah, yeah. Because either there's a couple of things. Maybe I already know kind of the market. Maybe I've done enough research that I can, I can fill in the blanks. But let's say you're a residential agent in Detroit and a million, two million people in, in the MSA. They don't have a clue and I don't want them. But if you go to a rural county, they're just trying to make a living. They will list the local Dairy Queen that went out of business. And so now they're a commercial broker. Then they'll go show a, a 322. Then they're going to show a mobile home. And then they got four dirt listings. They're limited. They'll take what they can get. So, you know, it's not uncommon. They have some land experience or they want to. And sometimes I'll get, I'll get the youngest, newest agent because they're not busy. They'll answer my call and they're hungry and they will work their rear end off. And all I need them to do is go knock on their broker's door and ask questions. Well, that lady or gentleman has 30 years of experience as a broker. They do know the answers to those questions. They can leverage that knowledge and we can come up with what a sales price is. Really, I need them to market it. I need them to talk to buyers. I need to put the contracts together and let's go get it sold. Yeah. Now, I know earlier on you you were talking about how you take all your money. You don't buy boats. You don't buy new cars. You just put it back into your business. That makes me wonder, how do you decide when and how much to pay yourself versus putting it back into the business? I know this is something every land flipper has to figure out, especially when they're doing it full time and it's like their primary source of income because you can drill money back into the business forever and never pay yourself, especially when there's this constant need for funding. How do you decide, okay, I'm going to pay myself this amount and just how do you rationalize that? Because if I, if I remember right, your prior career with your W-2 was a job that paid fairly well. So I imagine this land business needed to pay you pretty well as well in order for this to work as your full-time gig, right? Yeah. So global, massive, Fortune 500, publicly traded. It was the major leagues of, of the technology world. But also remember what we talked about earlier, I would have team members that were just incredible people that would you know, the political winds changed and they got laid off. And being sort of an abrasive, I'll give you my opinion, boss, whether you like it or not kind of guy, I always figured I'm going to make the wrong person upset at some point. (laughs) Mm -hmm. One of the things that was driving me to like, I got to go find something else. Well, in 20, I guess it was 2019, I got a new boss who was, about 20 years younger than me, had never had my job, didn't have a clue, had come up through the ranks as a middle manager, managing like interns and, you know, 22 year olds out of college and that kind of stuff. And he walks in and made it very clear that he was the new sheriff in town. And and if I didn't do exactly what I what he said, my days were numbered. And I'm like, you know what? I went back and looked at my PL and said, 
I think we're to that day where the money might be okay, but I know I don't need to be doing this anymore. So I closed a bunch of really big transactions, cashed a nice commission check, doubled my number for the quarter, did a mic drop and quit and said, I'm going to take the summer off and just kind of see how it goes. And what I figured out was now I have a lot more time and a lot less stress to focus on this business. And now I do a lot more than I did back then. And I never looked back and don't regret it. Yeah. That's a, a very common thing. I've experienced it too, where, where when a person quits and goes full-time, they end up making way more because they've suddenly got all the time and free mental space to you know, advance their business that they didn't have before. And it's kind of like the opposite of what a person's fear might be that they're not going to make it. Yeah. I mean, well, you're exactly right. And what I'm saying is nothing new to the world. You know, you get uh, layoffs and what they call riffs, or you get, you know, a boss that's a, an incompetent, you know, all that stuff happens. But then yes, also you say, all right, what you said is exactly right. My logic was let's spend, you know, three or four months kind of focusing on this and let's see how it goes. And it just took off. And I said, why would I ever go back to that? And it, dude, it's hard. It is hard to figure out how to be independent, self-employed, financially successful. And I don't want to imply, you know, you somebody says a sentence, oh, I did it and I'm great. And uh, No, man, it's hard. But if you put in the time and the effort and work and, and you're consistent, yes, you can get there. And now I look back on it, the risk, you know, anybody who has one job and they're W-2'd, the winds could change tomorrow. And now you're trying to figure out how to pay your car note and pay your mortgage and pay your credit card bill and pay for your kid's college or your, your kid's dental bill or whatever it is. Whereas if I lose a deal today, I got 10 more of them. It's not a hundred percent of my income. It's 5% or 2% or whatever the number is. Yeah. So in terms of how you do pay yourself, do you just kind of set like, okay, I need, I don't know, I don't know what your number is, but hundred grand a year. So I'm going to set up some kind of W2 uh, payroll software to do that on autopilot. And then if I ever do need more money for a car or something, I just take a distribution. Like, is that how you would think through it? Or do you have some other logic for when and how you take money from the business? I wish it were that, that difficult. I mean, I, you know, basically I look at my checking account and I have a minimum number. I mean, I, I, I manage cash flow and we can get into, you know, people say, Hey, I want to do this. You got to be able to manage your own checking account. Real basic. I just was, have always lived frugally and kind of, I'm going to say nesting, you know, you're kind of preparing for that day so that you don't have a lot of debt. And I'm in that boat now. So what I did was I just said, okay, I'm getting low on that number. I write an owner debt, owner's equity check out of my business account and I need to pay myself this week and I move money over. And I do that once or twice a month just based on what's going on. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I mean, I know you say you live frugally. I mean, that means different things to different people, but, but on that note, like I found, you know, when I quit my job and I was prepared to live as frugally as I needed to, which is very, very frugal. Like, honestly, I didn't find that limiting. I found that very exciting because of the fact that like it, it empowered me to just uh, say, I don't need you boss. Like I'm okay on my own. Like the freedom is worth so much more than the money, just the ability to kind of 
dictate my schedule and do what I want to do that day. I was almost like proud to live frugally if I had to. The term you used is freedom. I'm a big freedom guy. I want my freedom. I want to come and go as I please. And part of that is if you're tied to, I need to know how much money I'm going to make this month because I've got a payment for however much money. I mean, we can get into that. that I, we can get into the books I've read and the, the things that I recommend to anybody if, if I'm talking to someone who's high school or college, you know, but well, I, I'll tell you this. I it, This is me talking, but I've always said there's three types of people. There's There's a consumer, a producer, and an investor. And a consumer is, I may have made 60 grand this month, this year, but I spent 80 grand because you have to have the latest iPhone. You have to have, you know, a car every six months or a year, you you know, whatever. The next is the producer, which is they're responsible. They have a good job. They put money in their savings. They do all that. But then they hand it over to one of the brokerage houses and they say, okay, I had had dinner with a guy on Saturday night. And he's like, I give all my money to my broker. He's like, I want to play with some money. The broker says, no, you can't take that out. Well, because it's in a 401k or an IRA or whatever, you know, they, they produce and that's great. But really an investor is when you can learn to save. And then once you have that bag of money, how to make that grow for you. That's the step. And that that's what gives you the freedom. Sure thing. Since we're sort of on the subject of your previous career and where you were coming from, were there any like key skills from that previous career or even just like unique, uh, unfair advantages that you have as a person, whether it's your personality or your mindset or financial position or whatever? Is there anything that you have that has made you more able to succeed than the average person? Anything come to mind about like, this is my superpower and that's what's helped me get to where I am. I will outwork you. That's it. I will work my rear end off to be successful and get where I need to get. Part of that's fear because, you know, like you said, I keep talking about in the corporate world, somebody's going to one day walk up and say, I mean, I'm in my mid fifties. If somebody laid me off today, I'm screwed. Nobody wants to hire a guy with my demographic and I'm 50 years in my mid fifties. I got a problem. So I'm going to, I'm going to outwork you and I'm going to hustle and, and, you know, I basically worked two jobs for two or three years. So I had my full-time job. My employer got every penny. I was extremely successful. They never missed out on anything. And then I would work till 10 or 11, 12 o'clock at night. I would work nights and weekends. I would do whatever it physically takes to stand the business up and make the business successful. And then when the day came, it's like, okay, I'm prepared for this day. Really, that's it. I am not the smartest guy in the world. I'm not. I just, I'm willing to go compete and fight and scratch and hustle and work when a lot of people want, oh, and self-sacrifice, deny, deny myself time, deny myself the next fancy car, whatever it is to get where I want to get. Yeah. Can you think back to anything in life that instilled those values in you? Like, I know, I think you've said you were a football coach in the past. I mean, I don't know what else you've done in your life, but. Is this something you were just born with this or is there something that molded you into this uh, this person that you are? Yeah, part of it. I mean, you know, family values, parents that were entrepreneurs and real estate people and, you know, worked hard and set that example. But just, you know, and living in the athletics world, 
you got to work hard to compete to get a spot to play and, you know, win games as a team or to, to play individually or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, that's, there's nothing there, but yeah. Yeah. Now, before we started recording, you mentioned that you were taught some things in the beginning that weren't right. And we're not going to name names or anything, but I was just curious, what are some of those things that you were taught to do by a land educator or two or three that you found to be incorrect? And what did you do instead? Well, one of them was agents. When I got into it, apparently agents were the the bad thing. Yeah. I figured that'd be one of the things. <laughs> yeah. You know, oh, agents are terrible. You don't want to pay them, blah, blah, blah. Okay, sure. And then hey, just kind of beating my head against the wall, figuring, you know, like I said, if you buy for two and sell for five, you're going to have to, A, manage that yourself, and then, B, your your cost of finding each deal. You're just not going to make any money. So... That was one of the big ones. The other thing was, I look at every, this is a business. Guys, this is a business. I'm running a business. And so I'm scrutinizing everything every day, question everything. What can I do better today? What can I do better today? One of those was on the expense side of my costs. I was overpaying for data and mail. And, you know, I went and, and interviewed, I don't know, eight mail companies and negotiated a rate. And, and it's funny now the mail company that I use, I've recommended to people and now they, they kill it in land They're They may be one of the leading providers. And, and then data, I went through, there's three data companies. You, you know, them, but for your listeners, there's black Knight financial, there's core logic and there's data tree, which is first American. And I went and talked to all of them, tried to negotiate deals with them. Uh, ended up, I used data tree and I cut my data costs in half from what I was paying through a third party provider that was provided by one of the organizations that I was working with. I cut my, uh, my mail costs. I'm I'm pausing because I'm thinking through it. I've cut my mail costs by 25%. Mail's really gone up, but that makes a difference. Oh yeah. How much mail are you sending? I mean, that can add up a lot when you're sending out probably the amount that I'm assuming you are. Yeah. Well, Last year, I think I sent about a quarter million pieces. This year, the the goal is way more than that, three to 400,000. But to be honest, I'm, the last 30 days, I've slowed down. I've What I call is I've throttled my mail uh, because I, I had a great Q1 and sold a bunch of stuff and had a lot of capital I need to place. And I was you know, fighting, trying to find deals. Well, guess what? I found a bunch. So that's a good problem. And I turned the mail off. Stop. So I really held out. But let's pick a number. Let's say I send 300000 this year. Okay. Uh, my mail cost is $0.52. Cents. And, and that's all in. So that so to be clear, that's a window, two-page, black and white only. And by the way, just as a side note, I do not text. I do not call. I do not email. I do not Facebook. I do not any... SEO advertising. I don't do any of that. I am direct mail only. Not saying any of those things are bad. And and we can kind of get into why I don't do that. But I only do direct mail. Well, if you do 300,000 pieces and my cost is 52 cents, let's just round it to 50 cents. Uh, What's that? 150 grand? Yeah. I mean, that's not a small number. Well, let's say without pulling out a calculator, let's say I was paying 70 cents or whatever. If I pay 150 grand in 2023 for mail, 
the old way that would have been more like $200,000. That's $50,000 to my bottom line. So, you know, just like any business question, all your expenses. Yeah. And you're using rocket print, correct? I'm using rocket. Sometimes they call it postcard mania. Yeah. I believe you were a notable figure in the reason why so many people use rocket print, right? I mean, you were kind of the guy that discovered it. Yeah, and then- well, that goes back to that, you know, four or five years ago when I went and interviewed like seven or eight companies. And so, yeah, it's rocket out of Clearwater. If I, you do the show notes and all that kind of stuff, they're phenomenal. They, they do a really good job. They do good service. Prices are fair. And that's who I use and will continue to use. And, and I, I like them. Yeah. And uh, RE Tips here does have an affiliate link with Rocket Print. You can get a discount on their stuff if you go through that. retipster.com forward slash Rocket Print. This will also be in the show notes too. retipster.com forward slash 162. Affiliate links to DataTree and anything else we're talking about here. Just FYI. Got to mention that since we're on the subject. One other thing I want to mention. One thing I want to mention as a tip to anybody who's doing this, if they're not, is to keep a do not mail list. You mean in terms of like an entire county or like a specific person or? You know, 123 Main Street, USA, sends you a letter back, your letter, with red writing of a bunch of foul language, never contact me. Oh, right, right. You put that into a do not mail database. Do you do that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's one of those things I was taught is, eh, worry about it because you're never going back there again. No, you need to keep a do not mail database. And it's very simple. You just put them into a spreadsheet. And then every two to four weeks, I send that to my printer. They update it. And anytime they're going to send a printing out, they will take all that, compare it against that. And if it's in the do not mail, it's legal. And it's the right thing to do to not bug people who don't want to be bugged. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good idea. I didn't do that the first year or so because I just didn't know any better. But once I started doing it, it's super easy. And it saves on your mail costs. Why mail to people you already know don't want to hear from you that you're not going to get a deal a deal from? And you're not bugging people and making them upset. What you're saying makes perfect logical sense. But I've also heard of people who uh, they don't do that. The rationale being like, you don't know if somebody got cancer all of a sudden. You don't know if somebody's died. Like, you don't know if some huge thing is changing. All of a sudden, they are willing to talk. And if you don't continue harassing them, you'll never know. And I feel like maybe it's an 80-20 thing where like 80% of the time, that's not the case. Like they really don't ever want to hear from me again and you shouldn't mail to them. If they ask me, put me on a do not mail list. Yeah, you kind of have to at that point, right? Well, well, legally, but even if it wasn't a law, I would do that. The way we approach our business is this is a service. We will help you. We won't badger you. I'm not calling you more than twice. I'm not bugging you. We can benefit you. Because people view me as the publisher's clearinghouse gal with that big cardboard check. Wait a second. I push the easy button. You deal with everything. You unwind this for me. And you write me money at the end. Yes, sign me up. And if I can, with my network of title companies and attorneys and surveyors, we can help you with your transaction and provide that service for you. Fantastic. But I'm not going to bug you. And if you say don't contact me anymore, great. I put you in the list and I'm I'm happy to do that for you. It's the right thing to do. One of the things I did when I got into this was, you know, like I said, I was a runner and I would listen to podcasts. Well, if I'm traveling for a business trip, if it's a two hour flight, everybody else is watching a movie, they're watching Netflix, whatever. I'm listening to podcasts with a legal pad, taking notes on the plane for two hours and <laughs> way back two hours, same thing. 
it's like in the matrix where the guy sticks the thing in the, in the back of Neo's head. <laughs> I think about that all the time. I wish it was that quick. <laughs> I mean, I'm that guy. I'm like, when he comes out of it, they said, well, is that okay? What do you think? He's like, oh my gosh, give me more of that. You know, yeah. <laughs> the way I was, it's like, I cannot get enough information crammed in my head fast enough. So one thing I want to be clear that you're not asking on is my cost for 52 cents. I buy, I'm going to say extreme bulk. Yeah, I would imagine. You know, if you're buying at 50 or 100,000 pieces at a time, they're going to give you a better rate. If you're buying 2,000, 5,000, 10,000, you're not going to get the rates that I pay. So you've got to make a decision. And, and it's almost like the old burn the boats analogy. You know, if you're looking at this and you're saying, well, I'm really trying to next level my business. And I, I look at you, listener, how many pieces did you send last year? First of all, you should know that number. If you don't, you need to find out. Okay, but let's say it was 10. Okay, you look and say, my goal is be goal-oriented. My goal is 20. Okay, we'll burn the boats. Call up Rocket or whoever you use and go buy 20, 30,000 pieces, have them in the bank, and now you know you spent that money. You've got to get the mail out, and that'll help push you to go do that. And and I will say this. I have a saying. I cannot stress this enough. When the mail stops, the business stops. You cannot ever stop the mail. And if you're going to be in this business, you have to commit to that. You have to select counties, download data, scrub that data, get it out to the printer, deal with it when it comes back in, rinse, repeat. If you stop your mail, people are like, well, my business has died. Well, how much mail have you sent? If you stop the mail, you know, you hear something about, oh, well, I've got problems in my business. And everybody says, well, send more mail. That's the big quote. That's great. But you have to have a consistent mailing. What does consistent mean? You and I had dinner with one of the guys in Phoenix. You know, I said, how do y'all do your business? And they said, we send out a hundred thousand in a batch about three times a year. Great. Some people, I think one of your recent podcasts, the guy said, without fail, I think he does 25,000 pieces every two weeks or something. It is that consistent self-discipline that you have to get the mail out. Yeah. Well, and what you just mentioned, how you had to throttle back your mail because you had too many deals to work with. So that's interesting to hear you say that because I've heard from multiple people in different places over the past several months saying things to the effect of, you know, the deals aren't there anymore. We're sending out 10,000 mail pieces and nothing came in. Or like, maybe it's time to just take a break. Maybe it's time to shut it down. Basically this idea that like, I mean, without saying it, they're basically saying this doesn't work anymore or this doesn't work as well as it used to anymore. Kind of this like defeated attitude that like, I give up sort of thing. And what I'm hearing from you is totally the opposite of that, that is still completely working and I'm just wondering, like, what should th those people do differently or how should they think differently? Like, what sets you apart from these other people who aren't able to make it work? Well, now, understand, I'm not saying it had been hard to find deals. Because, like I said, I had a great Q1. I had a great January. For tax purposes, I took transactions that could have closed in, in December, closed them in January. So it pushes it all into a new tax year. Still pay my taxes and, and do everything above board. But, yeah. Well, then you've got all this capital you got to go deploy, and I'm freaking out. Go back to superpower. I just went and worked my rear end off to go find deals. As I mentioned earlier, I've got two deals that are about a million each on the buy side. 
One of those is mail, but one of those is just MLS. It's going to be a subdivide. Well, when you go do that and, you know, I think I'm going to put 300 into that one, that eats up, up some capital. But the other thing, you know, the question is, what is your rate of deals per pieces of mail sent? And I have an extremely hard time trying to quantify that. I want to say it's 10,000 pieces. And man, I could be so far off on that. It could be 2,500 or 5,000. But let's say it's 10,000 pieces. Okay, get over it. It cost me 52 cents per piece times 10,000 pieces. That's five grand. Am I willing for my GSA, my cost of goods sold, whatever the accounting term is that you want to look at of my cost to find that transaction was $5,000. Well, if it's a buy for, let's just say it's a buy for 50 and sell for 50. Okay, I didn't make 50. I made 45. Okay, I still made 45 grand. Get the mail out. Move up market. Try to get the larger deals. Expand to other markets, other states. And here's one of the things, you know, my question to you when we were preparing for this was, who is your listener? And and you gave me a, a broad spectrum of people who are just curious and never done land to experts. Okay. One of the mistakes that I made was everybody wants to mail to New Mexico and, and Arizona. And have never mailed. I've never done a deal in New Mexico or Arizona. I actually did mail one of those one time. That was another thing that organization that I was learning from was like, yeah, a lot of people are doing this and all that. One of the things that helped me go from I cannot figure this out to I can figure this out is local knowledge that I have. So, for example, if you live in Minnesota and you went to college at Arizona State and now you live in you grew up in in Minnesota, you went to college at Arizona State. Now you live in Tennessee. Those are three states that you have intimate knowledge. You understand the culture. You understand the geography, you understand, you know, what lakes and rivers and whatever beaches that people want to go to. And there's no no beach in those states, but you get it. You know, I would say start in your own backyard. And that's one of the things that I made the decision. I said, okay, I'm going to send out like a 2000 piece mailer to a very targeted area, applying the the mistakes I've made and the lessons I have learned and how to correctly price because I was not pricing correctly. I was totally screwing that part of it up. And I'm going to do it in an area where I know that area. I've, I've stood in that town before. So if you're getting started, do it in either your backyard or the state that has been your backyard, because that will help you get past it. Yeah. I, I was talking with uh, Dave Denniston a few weeks ago at his uh, conference we got talking about how the the land business has changed in terms of like the uh, mail to deal ratio and all this stuff. And uh, when I got started, I mean, it was, you know, send out 500 postcards and like you got at least a deal, maybe more. And now it's like several thousand and maybe you'll get a deal. If you're spending that kind of money to go after little couple thousand dollar profit deals, I don't know, the, the numbers just don't make sense. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, like I say, if you send 10,000 pieces at 50 cents a piece. And you spend five grand. Well, if you buy a deal that's two grand and you make, you sell it for five. Okay, I made $3,000, but just my mail cost was five grand. The numbers don't work. So that's one of the reasons I've gone to subdivides because you can find those on market, on on MLS. And then I'm starting to look as I, you know, just for me, as I grow my business, looking at 
moving into some other areas of real estate. But if it's a new person, you know, that question always comes up is how much money do you need to get started? I mean, you need, well, you need five or 10 grand, whatever, to, to buy a piece of property. You need some mail costs. How much those mail costs are is how good you are at scrubbing and pricing that stuff. You can do what I did. You know, like I said, I, I lost money, I think, my first year because I was just terrible at this. <laughs> I was, I was god awful. But, you know, you you learn and you hustle and you talk to people and you you ask questions and you scrub and you whittle and you work and you finally kind of get there. It's interesting that that, that didn't kill your spirit. You know, a lot of people, if they lost money a single time, you're like, I'm out. But uh, not only did you not quit, but look where you are now, you know? Well, I got close. You know, I, I did. I mean, it was close to a year to when I actually got a deal. And I got close on it. And I was like, okay, I'm going to take everything I've learned to this point. I'm going to go in my backyard. I'm going to send a small mailer. I'm going to see if I can get better at this. I mean, there has to, you know, again, burn the boats. I can't go backwards. There has to be something here. Because at that point, I had seen enough. You know, I've gotten some responses, some phone calls, some things that had kind of helped me see, okay, maybe there is something here. But, you know, that first deal, I paid about... 10 and called an agent and found somebody who would list it for about 25. And within two, three, four weeks, got a contract. I'm like, okay, this works. This actually works. And from then it was like, how fast can I roll? Yeah. When you think back to when you were getting started and where you're at today, we've kind of talked about some of this stuff, but what were your biggest challenges and struggles back then? And what are they now? Like, what is the hardest part of this business for you? Wow. The hardest part was just getting it going. You know, we talked about you need to have some money set aside to buy land. You need some money set aside for mail. Well, you've got data costs. I I do absolutely think you need a website. You have to have that ready to go. You know, you've got to have, I prefer a phone answering service. I use Pat Live uh, and have for years. You know, you've got to have all of those things teed up. And and that was just really it was just understanding how to price, how to pick, you know, what a deal looks like, you know, how to scrutinize the value. So, you know, all the things we all look at is, does it have access? Is it in a floodplain? Is the slope buildable? Does it have a clear title? Learning all of those components of what good looks like. That was really it. Once I figured that out, it's like, okay, Today, I've got 20 grand to play with. And then a year later, I've got whatever, 200 grand to play with. And you just do more of it. Today, taxes are, are, there's a couple, there's two things. One is taxes. I'm going to bore people with accounting today. When you keep a real estate asset for under 12 months, that becomes ordinary income. There's no capital gains. There's no 1031 exchange, any of those tax benefits that you can leverage. So, I'm just paying good old taxes. I could be selling socks or tires or whatever. That's painful. And I need to mitigate that, which means I need to move into some other areas of real estate. So I've got some long-term holds. Probably the second one is the thing that you and I talked about is, is the land hamster wheel. I mean, I do a lot of it. I pick, I price, and I'll go into my team in just a second here. But I do so much of it. That, you know, okay, I, I would like to have this kind of an automated where I don't have to do as much. And, and the land will never go away, never say never, but I, I really enjoy it. I'm good at it. It's profitable. 
but I need to do some other things. The thing that I, I would say, you know, you talk about time. It is just me. There are no other investors. Occasionally, I'll use a bank on transactions where I make where it makes sense. But in terms of my team, my team is great agents, great surveyors, great title companies, lawyers, banks, CPA, and and those are all external vendors. But like I said. I want to be the easiest guy they work with. They love answering my phone. I pay them quick. I, I bring them business. My CPA audits my book. So every every settlement statement or, or HUD-1 that I get, buy side, sell side, goes to my CPA. They have access to my bank accounts. They have access to my business credit cards. I don't intermingle funds. If I have a credit card, it's just for the business. And then they audit that and I get a balance sheet and a P&L every month. Do you have any employees? Like a assistance or anything? So I have one or two-ish. So I have a transaction coordinator. She is local. She lives in the same city that I'm in and she does a really good job. She had, you know, I found her on one of the job websites. What does that role consist of? Because you're using title companies, right? So what is there to coordinate? Yeah. So we send out mail, call comes in, goes to Pat Live. There's a couple of ways to configure that. I have it set up so that at 6 a.m., the batch of yesterday's calls come to us. I get an email, she gets an email. And then she and I have a standing call every morning for deal review. And okay, we had X number of calls come in, we go through those calls, and she's going to return all those calls. So I don't speak to those people. She does. I do not talk to the people who respond to our mailers. She only talks. And she's been with me for three years. Then I'm like, okay. She'll ask title questions and do you really own it? And the typical stuff. And then, okay, this one's a deal. Okay, there's no fraud because people will try to defraud us who do this. They have clear title. They're willing and able to sign. I have a standing rule. I don't buy land from anyone who's in a nursing home. I'm not here to steal stuff from old people. I'm not taking advantage of anyone. I provide a service. Because of my background and because of how long I've been doing this, I understand wills and probates and quiet title actions and how to do trusts and all of this stuff. And so we help people through those. We hold their hand through those transactions. Some things that we buy are not listable. They can't give it to an agent because the title's too screwed up. I'll come in and write those checks, which will separate me from a lot of people who are not willing to do that knowing that there's going to be a percentage of those deals that won't close. And she does all of that. So she helps them. And then I say, okay, this one's a go. Send it to the the title company. And (laughs) I joke with her. I said, okay, you're marrying this title company. So if there's a problem, you picked them. Just like you picked your spouse. It's not my problem. And we joke about it. And she goes and deals with them. And she handles all of that from the sellers to the title companies. I have a VA that scrubs. So I was really reluctant to do that. I waited forever and I paid my teenage kids and that kind of stuff. And I now use Reva Global. So Seth, you have a a really good podcast that I'd recommend. It's number 110. I still have my notes from that. Oh, nice. And you went through, I don't know, probably 10 or so different VAs and the, the pros and cons and the value of and that kind of stuff. And I was driving and I was driving, I was listening to podcasts, trying to learn. And I was like, okay, this one is so good. I went back and re-listened to it when I was in my office where I could take notes. And then I kept that. 
And when the, the time came, which was this calendar year, I said, all right, I've got to do this. And interviewed a bunch of them, hired Reva. I mean, we'd get into that, but way better than I expected. Service is great. Values there. So yes, I have someone scrubbing a VA, and then I have a transaction coordinator. That's basically it in terms of on the payroll, everybody else is external. Mm-hmm. I love that, man. I I mean, as somebody who is from a similar vein, like I don't have a big team, mainly because I'm not good at managing a big team. But like whenever I see somebody who can make it work either on their own and just kind of hiring contractors and that kind of thing, I guess it just gives me hope to know that it's possible to do this without having a massive payroll that you have to pay. I mean, I go to the gym and work out, but I, I don't like all. So you know, yes, I probably work a little bit more, but so let's talk about it. I don't have any partners. I don't have any accounts receivable, meaning people bought something, but they hadn't paid me yet. And I've got to go collect. I don't really have any employees that I have to handhold and babysit and all that. I wanted as, as much freedom as I could possibly get. And the entire business was built around that concept. It sounds like you're very, very comfortable and familiar with market values in the markets where you're working. So I'm just wondering, like, how many markets do you work in? Do you have like a state or two where it's like you just hit them again and again? Or are you going all over the place all the time? Or how do you how do you handle that? My answer is I will do any transaction in the United States if it makes sense. Are you actively going after those? No. Now, that's the next answer. Probably done deals in 10 states. I mean... There's a lot of property out there and I can't mail them all. And I've mailed some that I've never done deals in. Looked at them and they're fundamentally like what their definition of access is might be different. So, you know, at any one time I run about eight or 10 states. That's basically it. And I know you kind of mentioned like for tax reasons and hamster wheel reasons, you're sort of looking for new directions to go in real estate. What is your long-term plan? I mean, for somebody who's been as successful as you have, and it seems to just be getting better and better year after year. And I know when we talked at the conference, you sort of expressed it's difficult to intentionally take some of this cash that's getting such a great ROI and park it in something that's going to get not as good of an ROI, but the money comes in more passively. But do you have any ideas on like, do you want to just keep growing land flipping or do you want to like divert cash and go in a different direction or where do you want this to go? Well, yeah. And, and to finish the thought, I mean, I'm so blessed. I'm so thankful. I'm fortunate to have the business that I have. You know, last year we did four and a half. The projection this year is between six to 10 million top line, probably eight. And based on where we are tracking, we're in Q2 right now and and where I think we'll be. And like I said, I've got two that I'm spending two million on just on the buy side. So the business is just growing. And, you know, if the business isn't growing, I'm going to be upset with myself. What am I not doing to make that happen? That's never going to stop. But, you know, the things I've looked at are the typical deals. So when I say, well, deals, the typical niches, multifamily, storage, short-term rentals are the three that I'm considering. And I will probably do two of those three somewhere. I know you're doing storage now. So for your listeners, you know, check that out. Seth has kind of a, here's step-by-step of he does a development there. That's really cool. I've checked that out. But, you know, through cost segmentation and you know the the initial tax deduction that you might get that if you put up I don't know four hundred thousand you can recoup some significant majority of that number whatever that is and in case I hadn't said it 
I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a CPA. I'm not giving frequent advice. So speak to your professionals. But now that we've got that safe harbor disclaimer, you know, if you can recoup that and then still keep it running, there may be some value there. So my goal is, and you'll hear me say that, I set goals. I set goals. Okay, what's my next goal? My next goal is I need to do at least one of those three that I just named that I own one of those by the end of this calendar year. They'll know that I'll get there, but that's where we are. Do you have any game plan for how to accomplish that or have you not gotten that far yet? Same as land, you know, same as I, I talked about with Neo and sticking that thing in the back of your head. I'm in that that mode right now of learning about those different market niches and which one might make sense for me. I'm hardcore in that. And then I might end up doing a, a coaching course with someone. And I've got a ton of questions for you, you know, at some point, really on the on the operations side. And then, you know, we'll see. It, it's really about the, the numbers and the returns, what makes best sense in terms of a risk reward. Do you ever use like a self-directed Roth IRA or something like that or any other creative ways to fund your deals or? Yeah, you know, talking about taxes and taxation and all that, I do have an IRA. I have a Roth. I recommend that to people. Again, not a CPA, but yes. And I did move a portion over because I looked at the returns. You're kind of limited when you do that through a brokerage house and what your returns might be. You know, 12% is fantastic. Uh, Warren Buffett gets about 20, 21%. I don't know if people know that, but that's what good looks like. Say, well, I'm getting better than that in land. And I looked into, can I do this myself with land? And the answer is yes. So it's a self-directed IRA. And I went through one of the many companies out there that will manage that for you and stood that up. And I just moved over a little money and said, okay, let me do a deal or two per year. You know, that's my goal is every year or two, I'm going to do a deal with it, try to grow that. And I have. And the returns in land, obviously, are so much better than than stocks. That's one of the ways that I try to mitigate my tax hit. Do you ever take that money, like after you've bought up property and then sold it and gotten your huge chunk of tax-free profit, do you then use that to buy more land or do you siphon any of that off into the stock market or something? Yeah. So, you know, you buy 100 shares of stock X and you sell it and you make a profit. Well, now it's sitting in your brokerage account. You just take that total capital and then you buy two different stocks. Exactly the same concept. I sold a piece of property. I made a profit. I have now more money to play with. And I go buy one or two or three tracks with that. You know, not a ton, but I, I do some through that. But Because the reason is, remember, it's a Roth. You cannot take the money out. So most of everything goes through the business. And I keep all the expenses separate, everything separate. I mean, it, it's all legal and appropriate, but which custodian are you using for this? Which company? Is it like a checkbook IRA where you can do it yourself? Or do you have to get them to get involved with every transaction? I would answer that this way. They're just okay. I don't want to say their name. A, I don't have their permission. I've never spoken with them about this kind of stuff. And B, would I recommend them again? Eh, I don't know. They're all right. They're more interested in getting their quarterly management fee than they are customer service. Yeah, I've, I've worked with two different companies and I kind of have similar thoughts. Like it's, they serve a purpose, you know, like it, it does the job, but it's not like just an amazing experience working with them. It's <laughs> just kind of a tool to get the job done. It's yeah, they're just okay. Have you ever had any mentors, like paid for mentors or coaches or anything like that? Or have you figured this all out on your own? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, if you count Seth, <laughs> you. you haven't paid me anything, have you? 
Yeah. Uh, well, this is it. I'm, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, then, like I did say, I, I paid a, a coaching group, uh, did that for a couple of years and finally said I'm probably better on my own. I don't do mastermind groups. I have a couple of times, but if you get in these mastermind groups, they tend to be people who don't know what they're doing and you're wiping noses and tying shoes and teaching little kids figuratively. You just need the right people. I mean, I can totally understand how the average person would be that, you know, just compared to you, but there's definitely people on your level out there. Or you get that guy or girl that interrupts everything and wants to talk over everybody because you don't understand how smart they actually are and how great they are. And here's the great thing I'm doing on Facebook. And da, 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 da. I'm like, shut up. <laughs> you know, if, if you're running your mouth, you're not learning from anybody else. And clearly you're a person who thinks you have all the answers. So, you know, and, and I just, I really, my time is so valuable. And, you know, the equation is you take 2000 hours in a year, that's a work year. And you, look at how much you paid taxes on last year and you divide by 2,000 hours, that's your hourly rate. Well, I am blessed to say mine's pretty decent. So you've got to be really adding some value to my time or I'm probably not going to do it. And I said, look, you know what? I'm growing my business. I'm successful. So I just I've kind of avoided that. There's very there's a few people in the industry that I have relationships with. I have their cell number. And, and people say, well, I know that guy. Do you have a cell number? If you got a cell number, you're probably his friend. Okay. Uh, but otherwise I don't. And and one thing I will say is I've had people reach out to me and say, Hey, I heard about you or you're on a list or I met you along the way. I want your help on a deal. Or would you partner with me on this deal? Or I've never partnered with anybody. I'm not saying I wouldn't, but I get people send me things that are typically junk and I'm okay. And, and the frustrating thing for me is I kind of know what I'm doing and they'll send it to me and I'm okay. I'm a nice guy. I'll help you out. And I'll spend a half an hour of my time and I'll go through the deal and like, all right, and I'll I'll send them an email or I'll talk to them on the phone. Here's the problems I see, especially if I send them an email. Here's the issues that I see. Here's what I do this deal. Probably not. Here's why. I give you a half hour of my time and I send that. People need to have a sincere appreciation for the contribution that everybody makes. I sincerely appreciate Seth Williams. And I've shaken your hand and told you that. I will spend my time and send this to people. They won't even send something back saying, thank you. I know. know. It's crazy, isn't it? So my tip out there to people, if you're trying to get somebody's help, say please and thank you. (laughs) Show some appreciation for their time because of the people who've done that to me, how many of them do you think I'm going to respond next time? Zero. And, And you see that, unfortunately, a lot. So yeah, just be thankful. Say thank you. Appreciate people's time. That would be my tip for the people starting out. Gotcha. Do you have any uh, book recommendations? Anything that uh, you've read or anything that's inspired you uh, that's helped you along the way? Yes. And we've all done this. You go buy a real estate book and you're super excited and you read it. You're like, okay. And then three months go by and you're walking through the bookstore again. Like there's no real estate book and you buy it, but you still hadn't done a deal. And then you buy another book and you still haven't done a deal. And I kind of got to that point in my life where I'm like, I will not buy another real estate book until I've done a transaction. Stop doing that. And, you know, everybody's trying to make money. All the gurus are trying to make money. They're cranking out books, whether they're value or not. Stop. Go do a transaction. And the books that I recommend, like to people, younger folks, college kids, whatever, rich dad, poor dad, obviously, these are not new. 
And these are not basically real estate related except for the first one. Uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, The Intelligent Investor. That's Benjamin Graham, right? As Benjamin Graham. And for those who don't know, Benjamin Graham was the mentor to Warren Buffett. And he looked at how do you take an asset, scrutinize that asset, and add a value to that. And that's where they get into value investing of, hey, this stock is undervalued. Uh, highly recommend that. The Richest Man in Babylon. Are you familiar with that one, Seth? Oh, yeah. Yeah, actually, um, the only struggle I had with that was trying to figure out the old English it was written in or whatever. There's actually a, a few people have um, updated that, just like the same story, but they make it easier to understand. But but yeah, it's a great book. A lot of timeless principles in there. I mean, it's probably the first one I, on this list, I would say. The Millionaire Next Door. Are you familiar with that one? Oh, yeah. Yep. yeah the author has passed. It was published 20 plus years ago. You kind of seem like the millionaire next door to me. I mean, I guess. I mean, I read that. It impacted me. And I said, I want to fit that profile. Yeah. Yeah. A couple others are Seven Habits, Highly highly Effective People. That's a great book. Great book. Again, none of these are new. There's a guy called, an old writer, Og Mandino, wrote a book called The Choice. He has several things uh, as an author, but The Choice was the one. There's one called Outliers. Have you read that? Yes, I have. Okay, so Outliers is a fantastic book. Talks about ten thousand hours, uh, among other chapters. That's Malcolm Gladwell, right? Malcolm Gladwell, exactly right. And I, I felt like I put in my ten thousand hours now, so I can kind of say, okay, let's talk. But great book. So I guess one other is the Purpose Driven Life. Rick Warren. Rick Warren, straight up Christian book. So you know, heads up to those who, hey, I might buy that one. But it's it opens with it's not about you. It's a, a a great book, and I recommend that to everybody. So most of those are not real estate. None of those are new, but they're all great, and they've been super helpful to me. Yeah, that sure is a hard thing to internalize that and really take that on, this idea that it's not about you. I mean, humans, we are driven to be the main character of our story. Like in our brains, like we are priority number one. Man, I mean, do, do you think it's really possible to think that? I mean, it, it must be, I'm sure, but like, when you think of the implications of that statement and really believing that, I mean, that means like your pleasure is not the most important thing. Escaping pain for you is not the most important thing. Like what you want is not the priority anymore. To really live that way is an extremely difficult, counterintuitive way to live. It is, but millions of people do it. I, I mean, how many different examples? Let's start with the U.S. military. Hey, it's not about me. We've got a guy who's injured on the battlefield and we're not leaving him behind, but I could get shot getting him, but it's not about me. You hear about immigrants that come to the U.S., they buy some sort of business, you know, a sandwich shop or a donut shop or a cleaners or whatever, and sleep in the back for two years. You talk about fathers who say, I hate my job. I hate my career, but it's not about me. I want to feed my family. I want to put a roof over their head. I'm stoic. I will do what it takes because I have a greater sacrifice. We have countless examples of that. And I'm nobody special. There are millions of people out there, men and women who do this. But I'm talking about from a personal level, that that book is a spiritual level. But no, it's not about you. Even what we talked about earlier of, well, I want a new car. Well, I, I want to have a Rolex. Why can't I have that? Well, you can say yes to those things and, and no to your success. Or, you know, the thing that I lived by and I've said for, I didn't make this up. You know, it's the old saying of, I will do for two years what others won't 
so that for the rest of my life, I will do what others can't. Have you heard that? Is that a Dave Ramsey thing? I don't know. And I've never done Dave Ramsey, by the way. People probably, if you've got debt, you probably need to go dig into that. I've never lived in debt. But yeah, that's the way I've always looked at it is I'm going to self-sacrifice because I got a goal in mind and I'm willing to go do that. So I don't know. It's not about you. In that book, it gets into the spiritual side, which we don't have to now, but um, I believe it. Yeah. It seems like when I, when I think of people who successfully do that, like live a truly selfless life, like when I think about my kids in the fact that I can honestly say, like, I would gladly take a bullet for either one of them. And I don't know if I could ever really say that until I had kids. But I think the thing that makes that possible is love. It's this thing that kind of transcends the selfish nature of humanity. And then just reflecting back on your experience with Ari Tipster, what role did it play in your ability to pursue this business and get to where you are? Oh, gosh, I consumed all of it. I mean, it was Ari Tipster. I consumed a ton of it. And then, you know, I expanded out how much free stuff can you get? from all the different gurus and coaches and all that, how many YouTube videos can you watch? I mean, it wasn't anything specific. Anything that is specific, especially if it's spreadsheets, that is quantifiable and can demonstrate dollars and timeframes and percentages and turns and all that kind of stuff, those things I gravitate to. You know, so many times... I'm not a fan of it, but there, you know, you get these gurus. If you believe you can achieve, <laughs> set a goal. Uh, okay, yeah. Really? Th- thanks, bro. That's, that's great tip. Good advice. You know, and, and that, that's not real. Come on, man, let's go. I can't recall anything, but mainly just, just your blog in general. Well, JB, is there any place people want to find out more about you or reach out to you or anything like that? What should they do? Should they go on any website or anything or? Yeah. So my website, my company is bcpland.com. That's Bob Charles Paul. So there, and then they can just contact us through the uh, email address, which is service at bcpland.com. Awesome. Well, JB, I just want to say thanks again for your willingness to share and open up and be transparent with the Ari Tipster audience. I know uh, this is not like top priority on your list of things to do. You're not necessarily a guy who just lets it all hang out. You're not looking for an audience or selling anything. And I just appreciate your willingness to open up and help other people figure out this business and overcome some of the challenges and just your honesty with some of your own challenges that you've had to go through to, to make this work. <laughs> I have a saying, you want to see my scars? Uh, you know, done a lot of stupid things, made a lot of mistakes. And, and hey, I have lost money on land deals. Not very many. In fact, I'm closing on one this week that I'm going to lose money on. It does happen. But yeah, said, I did this because I wanted to support you and the great work you do. You have helped me. And if if my story can help others, then, you know, great. I'm, I'm happy to do that. Yeah, definitely appreciate it. We'll have to talk sometime about self-storage or anything I can I can help you with. Just let me know and we'll we'll hash it out. Well, we mentioned a ton of stuff in this conversation. This was a super rich discussion. There's going to be links to a lot of different resources that JB brought up uh, in the show notes. Again, it's retipster.com forward slash 162. That's where you can find references to all the stuff we talked about. JB, thank you again. Appreciate your willingness to to chat with me. And uh, to all the listeners out there, we'll talk to you again next time. Thanks, Seth.
Hey folks, I hope you love what you just heard. Before you go, I want to make sure you're aware of the RE Tipster newsletter. This is something that we spend a lot of time pulling in content and conversations from throughout the RE Tipster community. We want to make sure you're aware of the hottest stuff that's going on right now. Things like active deals from other wholesalers in the community in the RE Tipster deal marketplace or changes in the industry that affect you and you need to know about. And of course, I'm always sharing the latest software and tools and services that I'm using that I think you should know about. And if you followed RE Tipster for any length of time, you already know there's a whole lot more I could talk about because there's a lot that happens in our community each week. And this is stuff you really don't want to miss. And that's why it's so important for you to be aware of what's going on. All you got to do is take out your phone, maybe even the phone you're listening to right now. Go ahead and text the word free. That's F-R-E-E to the number 33777. And we'll get you added to the email list so you get this newsletter and you're always aware of the most important things going on in our industry. Thanks again for listening. Again, just text the word free to 33777 and we'll get you squared away. Talk to you next time.